2: Hey everybody, it's Mike from the Mike Wagner Show, powered by Sonic Web Studios. Visit online at soundquabstudios.com for your needs and brought to you by our official sponsor the Mike Wagner Show, International warring author, Author, and Most is the missing, available on Amazon and paperback and ebook. We're here with a terrific gentleman who spent his career in national security and intelligence, beginning with his time in the Air Force as an intelligence officer, worked as a senior executive in aerospace in the defense industry. And he also uh ha- also has a book out there which uh dramatizes the 1983 nuclear war scare that was dangerous as as much or worse than the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis and What Really Happened in 1983. He's also the winner of the best uh, military fiction book, and the book is called The Able Archers. Now, live, ladies and gentlemen, from the Plus Studios in beautiful downtown Sarasota, Florida, spent his career in national security and intelligence, and he's also the author of the book The Able Archers. Ladies and gentlemen, Brian Moore. Brian, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, Well, it's my pleasure. Great to be with you, Mike. It's a real, real honor to be with you. Well, it's great to have you on board as well, too. Brian, you spent your career in national security and intelligence, beginning with your time in the Air Force as an intelligence officer. You worked in in the um, senior executive in aerospace in the defense industry. And uh, you also have a book that uh, dramatizes 1983 on nuclear war scare that uh, which was dangerous as the uh, 1962 Cuban missile crisis. And what really happened in 83, we'll, we'll ask that your book was the winner of the best military fiction. And you have a book that's called the able archers. And before getting all that, uh, Brian, tell us how I first got started.
4: How the book first got started.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, uh, well, well, let's talk, uh, Before we get to the book, let's talk about okay. how you got started in the business. So oh, let's okay. go all the way back. Okay. Very good. Uh, well, I think,
4: when I was in high school, I developed an interest in uh, international relations and uh, uh, made a, I guess, a decision that uh, I was gonna try to get into either the intelligence business or foreign policy. And uh, and when I was in college, uh, I studied, I was a history major, but I focused on Russian history. Uh, and I guess these days I'd probably be called a Russian studies major. I also also studied um, Russian language, uh, but I also took a lot of East Asian history. And uh, so those were kind of my specialty areas academically. And um, I uh, got into the intelligence business, as you said, through the Air Force. Uh, I was not really intending to go into the Air Force. I had gone through the whole CIA selection process and and actually was selected um, by them. but. Uh, my entry was delayed along with the rest of the people that year because of uh, budget cuts and other, other issues, I guess, internal to the agency. And so I wanted to get working and I wanted to get started and some CIA officers encouraged me to go into the military and become an intelligence officer. And uh, the only service I really considered seriously was the air force. Um, And so I, I was fortunate enough to get into officers' training school in the Air Force and went through their Intel training and uh Intel training with some of the other three-letter agencies. And uh uh that's how I got
2: started in business. Mm-hmm. And what got you first interested in uh studying Russian?
4: Well, it was during the Cold War. I graduated from high school in 1974, which dates me, I guess. And mm-hmm. um uh I it, it, in those days, I think the, the most interesting, at least to me, foreign policy challenge that the United States faced was that of the Soviet Union and the communist bloc. And uh, uh, it just intrigued me. And I was I, I'd always I was intrigued with Russian literature and, and Russian culture and and so forth. So it, it just seemed like a natural thing for me to do. It was a, something I, I was deeply interested in. So it made it easy to study.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's only it did and uh do you remember some of the russian phrases and uh what are some of your favorite russian phrases
4: <laughs> well i don't remember a whole lot of russian anymore but um, i do get to use it occasionally um i i don't know I, in terms of uh, favorite phrases uh uh it, it's always nice to say pijalst to russians and ochen havesho and things like that so um uh yeah i I don't particularly have any particular favorites, but um
2: anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I also worked with a bit of Russians as well, too. You, you can also say, like, um, you know, it's a good day. They can say like in uh you know, like a couple words, it can have like, you know, several different meanings as well, too. Like say "dobro Utra, yeah. which is good morning, or a day is good, or Doberdin, good afternoon, and noche," which is um yeah. You know, good evening. It can be like, you know, day is good or it's a really good day. It can have like just several meanings too. It's just like, that's kind of like, you know, just, um, you know, kind of figure out in a way. Yeah. It's an interesting language. It's a, it, it's
4: spoken well. It's really a lovely language uh, to hear just orally. Uh, and it's a language that's very logical. Uh, unlike English, it has rules and it sticks to them by and large.
2: And so it's a, uh, it's It's a good language for a logical brain to learn, I think. Mm-hmm. and and what are some of your favorite cities in Russia? And uh, what are some of the things that intrigue you about Russia? Well, I think like many people, my
4: favorite city in Russia is St. Petersburg. Uh, it's a beautiful city, although it's it's much more western than most uh, Russian cities. Uh, but St. Petersburg is is just a glorious place. I have not been there in many, many years. Um, uh, Moscow's interesting. It, it, its character is quite different from that of St. Petersburg and it is more Slavic, I think. It's uh, St. Petersburg is more of a, almost more of a Scandinavian and, and Western facing kind of city. And that's what Peter the Great wanted when he founded it. Um, uh, in terms of Russian culture, I mentioned, you know, Russian literature. Uh, I love Russian classical music, uh, uh, and was always intrigued by that growing up. And so, yeah.
2: Hmm.
4: where are some of your, your favorites? Favorite? Yeah. Ooh, uh, I like Borodin. I think a lot in Mussorgsky, and um, of course, uh, everybody. I guess likes Tchaikovsky, (laughs) but, um, Rimsky, Korsakov. Yeah. You know, those guys. So,
2: yeah. Mm -hmm. And and there's a lot involved as well too. You also worked as a senior executive in aerospace and defense industry and, um, you know, a little bit of work, especially coming out of the, um, air force as well too. And there is life after the air force too, especially.
4: Right. I, and I left the air force when I was relatively young, I was, I was 30 years old and I went into industry, so I didn't do a full career in the air force and, so the, the bulk of my adult life was actually spent in the aerospace industry.
2: Okay. All right. And of course, this also led you to the book as well, too. The Able Archers and the story told through the eyes of... um a young American intel officer and also experienced Soviet counterpart. We'll talk about that and your experience with it um, going back to 1983. But first, listen to the Mike Wagner Show at the MikeWidenerShow.com, powered by Sonic Web Studios. Visit online at SonicWebStudios.com for all your needs. Look at a professional website without breaking your budget. Sonic Web Studios is the answer. Sonic Web Studios offers fast, affordable custom web designs that blow the competition away. Call today, 1-800-303-3960. It's 1-800-303-3960 or email to support at sonicwebstudios.com. Mention the Mike Whitener Show. Get 20% off your first project. Sonic Web Studios, take your image to the next level. Also, time to give an official shout-out to our official sponsor of the Mike Whitener Show, international warring author Mia Molsonzia if you love fast paced mysteries, you'll love Missing by Mia Molson Zia, available on Amazon and paperback and ebook. Missing is fast paced and intriguing with an unforgettable twist. It takes place in four countries, two strangers, one target, where truth is an illusion and those you love will be the first go missing. It's available on Amazon and paperback and ebook. Missing by Mia Molson Zia has great reviews and Evil 11 enjoyed by Howard Celebrities, including Joanna Cassie, Forge Riley, and Maneos. So grab your copy today of Missing by Mia Molson Zia. Available on Amazon. Also, check out The Mike Widener Show at the themikewidenershow.com on over 40 podcast platforms. Heard in over 100 countries, including Facebook, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Also, Anchor FM, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Audible, Apple Music. Also, on Big and Rumble and on Hamilton Radio every Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, and a few networks coming soon. Tickets with you on any mobile device. Subscribe to The Mike Weidner Show on the YouTube channel. Follow The Mike Weidner Show on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok today. And for great gift ideas, go to Amazon.com. Check out The Mike Weidner Show podcast. T-shirts, pop sockets, throw pillows, tote bags, hoodies. Makes great gifts 24-7. Go to Amazon.com. Check out The Mike Weidner Show podcast. And for more great gift ideas, go to Amazon.com. For great books like Missing, Once, and Wrinkles, also, t shirts, pop sockets, hoodies, phone cases, and more. Amazon.com slash me and Bolsonzia. Check it out today. I'll support the Mike Weidner Shrine, Anchor FM, PayPal, and the MikeWeidner Show.com. Make sure you do so today. We're here with the uh, author of the book, The Able Archers, Brian Moore, here on the Mike Weidner Show, spending his career in national security and intelligence, beginning his time with the Air Force as an intelligence officer. And uh, your book is uh, basically dramatizes the 1983 nuclear war, which uh, basically scares. The Dangerous uh, Memories of the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. And um, tell us more about your book. And uh, how does that parallel to the 62 Cuban Missile Crisis? Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Mike. Uh, I th- I think
4: there are actually a, lo- a lot of parallels between the 1983 crisis and what's going on in Ukraine today. And we can maybe talk about that later. Um, I-, I think with respect to 1962, which, of course, people – know a great deal more about than the 83 crisis. There are some key differences, I think that I would I would point out. Uh, and, and one critical difference, and one reason people don't know about 83 while they know about the Cuban crisis is uh, 1962, the crisis kind of played out in plain sight. It was on television. Uh, President Kennedy gave a couple of national addresses Uh, During the Cuban Missile Crisis, they revealed intelligence imagery right on national television, uh, showing the the missiles that the Soviets had installed in Cuba. Uh, There were visible military movements around the United States. People knew this was going on and were very frightened by it. I I remember my parents being extremely anxious uh, during that period. I, I remember we had... Uh, uh, an evacuation from school when I was in kindergarten. And um, so it it was very much top of mind for people. It was being covered by the national news, you know, as as much as they could do in those days. Whereas the 1983 crisis uh, really played out in the shadows and people didn't know what was going on. Uh, they knew about one of the events, which is one of the key trigger events, which is when the Soviet Air Force shot down a, a Korean 747 airliner. I remember that. On the 1st of September, 1983. So people were aware of that, but they they weren't really aware of everything that happened afterwards, or frankly, things that happened prior to that, that, that really created this massive tension that, uh, that existed between uh, the U.S., NATO, and the Soviet Union. Uh, so I think, you know, that's a critical difference. Another big difference between the two is that during the 1962 crisis, the White House and the Kremlin were in communication. They had direct official communications between President Kennedy and Premier Khrushchev. Uh, they also had a President Kennedy established a back channel uh, through his brother, uh, the attorney general with the Soviet ambassador to Washington. So there was lots of communication uh, back and forth, and that was almost completely absent in the 1983 crisis. There was virtually no meaningful communication between Washington and Moscow in the fall of 1983, especially after the Korean airliner was shot down. Uh, and so each side really didn't understand the other and it really didn't understand the motivations. There were, there was uh, all kinds of ample opportunity for miscalculation in 1983. Certainly there was room for that in 1962, but the fact that they, they were communicating so often and openly uh, tended to mitigate that. Whereas in 1983 uh, we were like two boxers who were blindfolded swinging at each other in the ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think those are two key differences, the lack of the communication in 83 and the fact that it played out in the shadows in 83 as opposed to 62. And and then a third uh, major difference is that the nuclear arsenals That the Soviet Union and the United States maintained in 1983 dwarfed those of 1962. And so had there been a nuclear war in 1983, it could have been a human extinction event. Whereas in 62, it would have been really bad, but it wouldn't have wiped out humanity. So -hmm. those are
2: some of the some of the differences between the two the two crisis periods. What do you think caused lack of communication back in 83 between the two countries? Well, I think it, it started really, uh,
4: really probably with President Reagan being elected and becoming uh, president of the United States. There wasn't a lot of communication, frankly, prior to that in the last year or so of the Carter administration. Uh, and so why would that be? It really was because the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in December of 1979 which really put the final nail in the coffin of the period of détente or the easing of tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union, which had which had played out during the 1970s. So even the Carter administration and the Kremlin weren't really talking very much in that last year of the Carter of the Carter administration. Then when when uh, Reagan becomes president and is inaugurated in 1981 the Soviets viewed him with great suspicion and hostility hmm. and, and he viewed them with great suspicion <laughs> and, and hostility.
2: So, so it's kind of like two boxers <laughs> kind of going out. So it's like, you know, kind of a little cat and mouse chess match and everything like that. So,
4: <laughs> and, and there were other reasons, there were other reasons for tensions, the war in Afghanistan, the Soviet war in Afghanistan, the fact that the Soviets were modernizing their nuclear forces uh, in Europe and in the Western Soviet Union, uh, kind of tilting the balance of nuclear power in the European theater, NATO was extremely concerned about that. And NATO, under the Carter administration, had agreed to deploy a new generation of American-made nuclear weapons to Europe in 1983. Uh, so that all that happened during the Reagan uh, presidency. In May of 1981. Uh, the leader of the Soviet Union, who was laying at Brezhnev at that time, approved a plan that was presented to him by the chairman of the KGB, a guy named Yuri Andropov. And that plan was to create the largest intelligence collection effort the Soviet Union embarked on during the whole Cold War. And it was really Yuri Andropov's baby and it was called operation ryan and ryan is a russian acronym that stands for nuclear rocket attack mm. and and this whole operation which was both kgb and soviet military intelligence gru all over the world was designed to collect intelligence that would support the notion that the united states was planning a nuclear first strike on the Soviet Union. So in, in a sense, what Andropov did was he started with a premise, which was he believed the United States was planning a nuclear first strike. He sent the whole intelligence community of the Soviet Union off to find evidence that this was in fact going to happen. Mm-hmm. And and then in the, so that was in 81, just shortly after Reagan became president uh, in Early 1983, and 1983 is, is the year that the Able Archers uh, focuses on, and many people, by the way, have called 1983 the most dangerous year in human history. March of 1983, President Reagan gave two major speeches, um, one on the 8th of March, which became known as his evil empire speech. Mm-hmm in which he called the Soviet Union, the focus of evil in the modern world and an evil empire. Well, that didn't exactly endear him to the leadership in the Kremlin. It made them even more paranoid and it convinced them that yeah, you know, Reagan really is our enemy. He's probably planning a nuclear first strike against us. And then the coup de grace was just a, a few weeks later, still in March of 1983, President Reagan gave a national address In prime time, announcing the existence of something called the Strategic Defense Initiative, which the media dubbed Star Wars. Star Wars, I remember that. And the Strategic Defense Initiative was Reagan's plan to create a nuclear shield, essentially, around the United States and its allies so that we could protect the U.S. and allies from a, a Soviet nuclear attack. Well, the Soviets viewed that as, oh my God, they're going to build this this strategic defense initiative, this shield. They can hide behind it. They can, they, the United States, can launch a first strike on the Soviet Union, and then sit back and and negate our counterstrike because they'll have this defensive shield. Mm-hmm. So. This completely panicked the Kremlin, the notion that the United States was going to embark on this this effort. And it further reinforced their view that, well, uh, the United States must be planning a nuclear strike. The other point about early 1983 is that the new leader of the Soviet Union is the aforementioned Yuri Andropov, who had been KGB chairman for many years. He succeeded Leonid Brezhnev, who died in November of 1982. So you now have kind of the chief paranoid guy <laughs> in charge in in the Kremlin, and uh, and he views President Reagan um, with out and out hostility and and with alarm uh, and uh, and so on. And uh, uh, moreover. In late March of 1983, just after Reagan gave his Star Wars speech, uh, the U.S. Navy conducted its largest fleet exercise in the Pacific since World War II. Mm -hmm. And the reason that upset the Soviets so much, and it did, was that it went up into the Sea of Okhotsk, which is this almost inland sea, as they view it, of the Soviet Union in the North Pacific. And uh, it was a highly provocative exercise, and it was one that embarrassed the Soviets because they lost track of this massive fleet. And there was an episode or an incident at the end of the exercise, which which I can describe for you in a minute, um, that really, again, alarmed them. So there were lots of things going on, both rhetorically and from a military provocation standpoint, that heightened these tensions between the two sides to really a fever pitch in 1983.
2: And, and which side uh, sounded off the uh, false alarm that really hit its uh, high peak before? Um, after months and months of interrogation, said that um, okay, it was it was false, it was a mistake, and all that.
4: Uh, are Are you referring to the Colonel Petrov incident, the the ICBM false alarm that
2: that Is might that, be- you- that might have been at being tied to uh, what happened in '83?
4: Yeah. Well, there, there, as I suggested, there were a series of incidents, and I talk about these in The Able Archers, and The Able Archers is a, it's a, an historical novel, it's a dramatization of these events, and I decided to write a novel instead of a, uh, a non-fiction book, frankly, because I wanted more people to read it
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. I
4: wanted more people to to learn about the 83 crisis than might otherwise do so so I wrote a book that I I wanted to be both entertaining and educational uh and I think I got it just about right based on the reaction of readers uh, and a number of people have compared the able archers to Tom Clancy's The Hunt for Red October Yes, in in terms of being a page turner and, and very, you know, something that is uh, something that you, you want to really, you want to get to the next chapter on. And so I I dramatize these events, but the, and one of the first things that I talk about in the Able Archers is this incident that occurred at the end of the big U S Navy Pacific fleet exercise. In uh, and this was in now early April 1983, where fighters, U.S. Navy fighters uh, from two carriers, overflew Soviet territory in the Kuril Island chain. The Kuril Islands, um, that most people probably don't know where that is, but it's northeast of Japan mm. and it's a series of islands that kind of c- connect um, the northernmost island of Japan, which is Hokkaido. And it goes all the way northeast up to the Kamchatka Peninsula. So the, and the Soviets had those islands fortified. They took over those islands from Japan at the end of World War II. And so anyway, as this exercise is winding down in early April, 1983, so uh, U.S. fighters overfly these islands and conducted mock bomb runs on Soviet military facilities. Well, that's an act of war. And the Soviets found it highly provocative, to put it mildly, and they they issued a formal diplomatic demarche to the U.S. ambassador uh, in Moscow, and they complained bitterly about it in the United Nations and, and so on. And uh, uh, subsequent to this overflight, um, the Soviet air defense forces in the Far East went on an unprecedented high alert and uh, embarrassing to the Soviets was the fact that when these U S Navy fighters overflew their islands, their territory, um, the fighter base in the Kuril islands, which was actually quite close to where these guys did the overflight never got any Soviet fighters off the ground. So the Soviets were kind of caught with their pants down and Mm. they were embarrassed and they went on this very, very heightened alert. Which um, began in April of 1983 and lasted all the way up to the shootdown of the Korean airliner. And I described that in the Able Archers. And, and um, you, you mentioned that there are two protagonists in the Able Archers. One is an American intelligence officer who's based on me and, and my experience. And um each of these guys each of these protagonists do first-person narration throughout the book so my character whose name is kevin katani um does first-person narration of these events leading up to the korean airline shootdown. and uh captain katani is on duty the night the korean airliner gets shot down so there's a whole chapter about that in the book where he describes those events and 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 how it all unfolded that night and the tension and so on and um and then the aftermath of the of the korean airline shootdown, which i describe in more detail than has ever really been revealed in any book before um, and i should point out that uh to listeners that this book and the other books i'm writing in this series the able archers is the first one in the series are all cleared by the Pentagon and by the intelligence community. Even though they're fiction, they contain so much real information that I get them cleared by the appropriate authorities in the, in the U.S. government. And I was somewhat surprised that they allowed me to talk about things that had never been talked about before. And uh, and in the aftermath of the Korean airline shoot down, um, just suffice to say that we, we nearly came to a shooting war with the Soviet Union in the 48 hours after the shootdown and that's something that the American public was completely unaware of and uh, uh but we we came just within seconds of actually air-to-air combat between the U.S Air Force and the Soviet Air Force
2: not now suppose the shootout war actually were to happen like an all-out nuclear war do, do you think um the U.S would Do you think other countries will really have our backs or were the other countries would be more supportive of the Soviets?
4: Well, I think in in that in that era in 1983, the NATO alliance and the other allies like Japan um, were squarely in the U.S.'s court and corner. Um, If there had been a general nuclear exchange, it would have affected everybody in the world and as i said earlier it, it might have even caused a human extinction event so everybody unfortunately was going to be affected had there been an all-out thermonuclear war
2: mm-hmm. and, and also part of the story is also told through your counterpart uh who's an experienced uh, soviet counterpart and um maybe just a bit about that and what he saw it's like you know, was it was a similar different you know how vastly different how similar or parallel or Anything like that? You give your Kevin his side of the story and the Soviet counterpart his side of the story. How parallel or how different?
4: Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So you're right. Uh, The other the the Soviet character, the Russian character in the book, is a colonel in the GRU, Soviet military intelligence, and his name is Ivan Levchenko. And Levchenko, as you say, is is much. He's older. He's in his early forties. He's very experienced. Uh, Kevin Katani's in his mid-20s. Um, and what I set up in the book, again, through this first-person narration, is that the reader sees the same events through different eyes. You see it through the American eyes. You see it through the Soviet eyes. So you first meet um, Colonel Levchenko in the book when he's, he's given the job of, He's, he's working in Moscow at the time, but he's given the job of going to the Soviet Far East and actually investigating the Korean airline shootdown And what really happened? How did this happen? What were the Americans up to? What was this Korean airliner doing flying in Soviet airspace? And then what did our guys do? What did our Soviet air defense forces do in response? So you see the Korean airline shoot down then through both sets of eyes Um, Levchenko, who, by the way, I based his character on KGB and GRU defectors that I knew in the 1980s that I I worked with. So he, he's kind of a blend of many of the best characteristics (laughs) I saw of some of those guys. And, and I wanted to make Levchenko a sympathetic character to the reader. I wanted to make him human and that These guys, you know, we're not all horned devils, you know, that he's a real human. He's he's married to a Ukrainian woman uh, as it happens. And he uh, he actually grew up in Crimea. And so he's he's a sophisticated guy. He's lived in other countries because he is a Soviet military intelligence officer, including living in West Germany. Um, He speaks German and Polish and English and and Russian. And uh, he's an American specialist. That's his that's his gig in Soviet military intelligence. He's an American specialist, so he does know a lot about the United States. And uh, but there's there are things he doesn't know. Obviously, um, the the other big incident that occurs after the Korean Airline shootdown occurs just a few weeks later. So the the Korean Airline shootdown occurred on the first of September, nineteen eighty three. Then on the night of the 26th and 27th of September 1983, uh, was the so-called Petrov incident, which um, was the uh, ICBM false alarm scare and ICBM is intercontinental ballistic missile. And I I have Levchenko in the room with Petrov on the night that these events unfold and The backstory there is I have uh, Levchenko be an Air Force Academy classmate of Petrov. In any event, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov was a real person. And he really was on duty at the Soviet's National Missile Defense Center the night of the 26th, 27th of September. And he wasn't supposed to be on duty that night. He was subbing for a sick colleague. And, and he was not normally a watch officer. He was, he was more of an engineer scientist officer. He was in charge of signal processing for the sensors, including satellite sensors that collected missile launch data. So anyway, he's, he's there, but he turns out to be the right man at the right place at the right time. And, uh, and shortly after midnight on the 27th of September, The missile warning satellites that he was so intimately familiar with, Soviet missile warning satellites, begin to report ICBM launches from Grand Forks Air Force Base in North Dakota. Huh, interesting. And they come in several waves. And so he has about 20 minutes to decide what to do and whether these are false alarms or they're real missile strikes. And if they're real missile strikes, if that's his judgment, then the Soviet leadership needs to retaliate. They need, and remember this is in the context of operation Ryan, where the Soviet Kremlin leadership is expecting a a nuclear first strike from the United States. Mm -hmm. So is this it, you know? And, um, but Petrov, again, uh, was an expert in these signals coming from the satellites. He was also knew a lot about the United States and he knew enough that it would be highly unlikely that the United States would attack the Soviet Union with dribs and drabs of missiles. They would he, he knew the United States would go all in if, if the mm-hmm. United States was going to attack, attack the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So He he made the determination that these must be false alarms. Um, He knew that the the satellites that were providing these signals were new and they had bugs. And so he, he just made the determination. I think this is some sort of malfunction and uh, I'm not going to suggest that we have a retaliatory strike. So, he made the right decision that night. And as I said, he had to do it within the space of only about 20 minutes. Um And he became known later in life as the man who saved the world mm. um because of that decision that night. And we in the West were completely ignorant of this event. We didn't know this happened until the late 1990s um, when one of Petrov's superior officers wrote a memoir in which he had a chapter called the man who saved the world. And he described this Petrov incident. So um, unfortunately for Colonel Petrov, he was uh, not rewarded by the Soviet union for this good decision-making. He was punished for not following procedures and protocols and his career was destroyed. Oh, that's uh, sad. And he ended up a very bitter, old alcoholic, actually. And uh, uh, he died, I think, in 2017. He died not that long ago. He did receive some recognition late in life from the United Nations and from the European Union for his actions that night. But so in any event, that's the second big incident in that fall of 1983, and I, as I said, I have Levchenko right there in the in the command center with with Petrov. So I wanted to do that to give the reader this visceral sense of how terrifying
0: <laughs> this
4: whole episode was, and um, and so I, I hope I succeeded. And then um, in part three of the Able Archers, I talk about the third and culminating crisis of that fall of 1983, which was precipitated by a NATO nuclear war exercise called Able Archer 83. Uh, and uh, obviously I drew the name of the Able Archers from the exercise Able Archer and Able Archer was um, the, the final phase of a multi phase Massive exercise that NATO began back in September Um, And it went through conventional war, chemical war, all the way up to nuclear war And the final phase was the Able Archer exercise Uh, The Soviets were extremely alarmed by the Able Archer exercise that year uh, For a, a number of reasons One is, again, there's this context of Operation Ryan is there in the background And the, the Soviets believed that the United States would launch a nuclear first strike under the guise of an exercise. That's what the Germans did in 1941 when they invaded the Soviet Union. That that was, they just believed that if we were ever going to do it, it would be under the guise of an exercise. And Able Archer 83 was very realistic. Uh, it was, it incorporated certain elements that, other exercises in past years had not, including changing all of our communications codes mm-hmm. at, the, at the crucial point in the exercise when um, the uh, we were when NATO would ask uh, President Reagan and Prime Minister Thatcher for nuclear weapons release. So the Soviets reacted to this exercise like it was the real thing. And I, I can talk more about that, but I'll I'll pause mm-hmm. here, but.
2: Yeah. Uh, uh, that'd be fine, too. You also mentioned how this is tying to the Ukraine situation and more about the yeah. book with uh, author Brian Mora of the Able Archers in one minute. You listen to The Mike Wagner Show at the MikeWagnerShow.com, powered by Sonicweb Studios. Visit online at SonicWaveStudios.com for all your needs and brought to you by official sponsor, The Mike Wagner Show, international warring author Mia Wilson's The Missing, available on Amazon and paperback and ebook. We'll be back with author Brian Mora of the Able Archers after this time
0: the mike wagner show is powered by sonic web studios if you're looking to start or upgrade your online presence visit www.sonicwebstudios.com for all of your online needs call 1-800-303-3960 or visit us online at www.sonicwebstudios.com to get started today mention the mike wagner show and get 20 percent off your project
2: Hey, hey, this is Ray Powers, and boy, are you in luck. Right place, right time. Tuned in to the Mike Wagner Show. You heard me. We're back with author Brian Mora of the Able Archers here on the Mike Wagner Show. And, um, Brian, you, you, it was a really good story you talked about as well, too. And before, how we, um, you know, t- you mentioned about how this whole thing Ties into Ukraine as well too, and this is kind of like I kind of want to throw us out there. Like, say, if Gorbachev were to uh, handle this whole thing, I think he would have played this um, whole thing out. The
4: 1983 crisis or the Correct. Ukraine yeah. crisis. Yeah. Um, um, well, yeah, in '83, Gorbachev was actually on the Politburo. He was part of the Kremlin leadership in 1983, so he lived through this, and. We, we, we know it had a major impact on his thinking and just as it did Reagan. Uh, and it really set the stage for the two of them to get together in 1985 and beyond and create the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty and the New START Treaty. And um, Gorbachev, based on his later writings, was chilled by what happened in 1983 and became determined to lower tensions, to lower nuclear weapons counts through treaties. And, and similarly, Reagan was too. So you had a confluence of uh, of a meeting in the minds uh, between Gorbachev and, and Reagan. It wasn't easy. Uh, it took years of negotiation, but they did get to and negotiate, uh, very meaningful arms reductions and lower the tensions and the temperature very, very significantly between the Soviet union and the United States, um, which unfortunately is not the case today between the United States and Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, you know, in terms of the relevance of the 1983 situation to Ukraine, and I do think it's relevant and I, I do think it's more relevant than the Cuban Missile Crisis to what we're facing. And, and why do I think that? Well, um, one similarity between 1983 and today is we're really not communicating with, with the Russians. And uh, you know, President Biden and Putin are not talking. They they had one sidebar discussion a few months ago, but there there really is no talk, be, no meaningful, again, dialogue between them. And the same is true at the foreign ministry level. Um, foreign Minister Lavrov and Secretary of State Blinken, they're really not talking. Um, I know that uh, our, our Secretary of Defense a couple of weeks ago did um, have a, a phone call with his counterpart, Shoigu, in in Moscow, and that was because um, of a specific concern about those, uh, errant missiles going into Poland mm. that, um, turned out to be Ukrainian missiles. So, but apart from that, we're not talking and we don't have any mechanisms to talk. And, and one of the things that readers will see in the Abel Archer's book is that in part three, Levchenko and Kevin Katani come together in East Germany to talk, and and they're brokering discussions between the two sides to try to come to some sort of peaceful resolution of the Able Archer crisis. But we're, we don't have any mechanism like that today between the United States and Russia. And so, I again, I think that the uh, the the potential for miscalculation is great. And the, the longer the war in Ukraine goes on, uh, the greater the chances, I think, for mistakes, for miscalculation, for accidents, for just bad things can happen that might draw NATO into the war, uh, that could cause an escalation I mean, of the war. The fact that Ukraine struck last week, they, they struck two Russian bomber bases deep in Russia with missile strikes, um, that could that could cause an escalation. You know, we don't really know how the Russians are going to respond to that at the end of the day. So I think that those are some of the similarities between 83 and today. There's a lack of communication and there's the potential for um, a lot of miscalculation and accidents and bad things can happen even if they're unintentional.
2: And, and lastly, as well, too, before we wrap up as well, too, we'd love to have you back and more about the Able Archers. Do you, and do you think uh, Gorbachev or um, I mean, will Putin ever restore Russia to its uh, former old glory, as he was talking about trying to get Ukraine to come back to Russia?
4: Well, I think that Putin has been chastened, I think, by the, the failure of the Russian army um, to achieve its objectives this year however um and he probably is lowering his sights now on on what's achievable i personally don't think the russians will ever give up crimea and the ukrainians uh, say that they won't stop fighting until they retake crimea so i don't I don't see a good outcome here um, for either side, but I, I do think you, uh, Putin's probably lowered his expectations mm-hmm. to some degree, at least in the near term. And that's one of the things the Ukrainians fear. The Ukrainians don't want to cease fire. They don't want to go enter into negotiations because they think the Russians believe time is on their side, not on the time, uh, not on the side of the Ukrainians. And if if the Russians can drag this out, um, I think that would be fine with Putin that, you know, they'll he would probably think that if they can drag it out, he'll ultimately achieve his his objectives that he went into the war with. But, the you know, the other thing that's similar to 1983 are these nuclear threats. So um, Putin has been, uh, as we all know, he and, and other senior officials in Russia have been making some not so veiled threats about using nuclear weapons in the Ukraine war. And uh, the, the potential for escalation is definitely there. Short of nuclear weapons, they could use chemical weapons. I happen to think that a likely escalatory action the Russians might take would be to attack um, commercial satellites. Mm. Because uh, you know Starlink, which is Elon Musk's company, and Viasat, which is another telecommunications company, are both providing um telecommunications support to the ukraine military and so from the russian point of view well those are legitimate military targets you know you're helping the ukrainians so uh we we could see an escalation in some type of attacks they might be cyber attacks they could be kinetic attacks against satellites on orbit so uh, they're Again, the potential for escalation is still there. And I think the longer this war goes on, uh, the greater the risks.
2: Mm -hmm. And certainly a lot of risk as well, too. And where can we find the Able Archers at, Brian?
4: Well, the Able Archers, um, people can certainly, um, I'd encourage people to go to my website, which is www.brianjmora.com. That's brianj M-O-R-R-A.com. And they can learn more about the book, about the history, and so forth on my website. Um, you can also find buttons there that takes you directly to the Amazon site or the Barnesandnoble.com site where you can buy the book. And the, the the book is available in hardcover, paperback, ebook, Kindle, and now an audiobook. Uh the audiobook just came out a few weeks ago and I just listened to it and it's really good. <laughs> they did I'm, a wonderful job
2: <laughs> with it. So, I didn't narrate it. They hired two, uh, oh they, darn. I was hoping you'd say something about a Russian.
4: <laughs> they hired two two actors to one to play Katani and a Russian actor to play Lefchenko. And so it's really well done. Um and then the last thing I'll, I'll mention is that uh the Able Archers has been optioned by Legendary Entertainment in Hollywood to make a either a motion picture or a TV series. Nice of The Able Archers and Legendary is one of the biggest production companies in the world. They're the the guys that um uh do a lot of. They did uh, they do all of the Jurassic Park movies and Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. So they're they're a serious outfit.
2: <laughs> yeah, certainly looking forward to it as well too. I have a little vodka with that. We're here with author and Brian Mora of the Evil Archers here on the Mike Wagner show. Brian, just a few more minutes. We'd love to have you back and keep us up there in the able archer situation. Um, what else can we expect from you in 2023 and beyond, Brian? Well, th-
4: thanks for that, Mike. Um I'm working with my literary agent now, um, book number two in the series, which is called The Righteous Arrows. Is done and my literary agent has it. He's going to be looking for a major publisher. Um, and so I'm I'm hoping we can get it out before the end of 2023, although these things take time. So hopefully it'll come out in 2023. Um uh, legendary entertainment, I'm not sure what their timeline might be. I'm actually going to meet with them in Los Angeles next month and maybe learn a little bit more, but I do think they're probably going to make a tv series and not a motion picture which would be great because you can really get into the characters more um and uh and i'm I'm also going to be in a netflix um documentary next year on the on the cold war which they're devoting an episode to 1983 and they've interviewed me extensively for that and So that's going to happen in 2023 as well. And I think that'll probably be out next summer. Um, And I think it's, it's, it's part of their turning point series. Um, And they did one, two years ago on the anniversary of nine 11, they Mm. did an excellent series. And so they're, they're timing this next year actually to coincide with the 40th anniversary of the 1983 crisis.
2: That is very interesting. We're certainly looking forward to it, Brian. And who do you consider biggest influence in your career? You know, I would say
4: it's one of the characters from The Able Archers. Um, it's a great question. I haven't gotten that question before. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, But my immediate answer is, uh, in the book, I call him General Doug Flannery because um, i, I I'm shying away from using real names for folks, um, but his real name was uh, General Charles L. Donnelly Jr. And he was my boss in Japan. He was the guy that kept us out of World War III in the days right after the Korean airline Shootdown, mm-hmm. um, And he was promoted to four-star general after that and was the commander of all the NATO air forces afterwards. And he was a very... He was a real mentor to me, and um, and I, I I was very close to him up until the time that he passed away.
2: That is certainly interesting, very amazing. And what's the best advice you can give to anybody at this point? Well, um, follow your passion and work hard. <laughs> I think I think that's, that's a- really simple. I like that. <laughs> I like that. We're author Brian Mora of the evil archers here on the Mike Wagner show. Brian, a very big, thank you for your time. Learned a lot from him being absolutely fantastic. Looking forward to having him again soon. Keep us up to date. Keep in touch. Live to have you back. Once again, what's your website? How do people contact you? Where can people purchase or check out your book? Yeah,
4: again, uh, www.brianjmora.com. Um, and there's actually a link there, I think to my, uh, email, my author's email as well. And, you can sign up for my newsletter there, which I, I bring out every month, and that g- keeps people up to date. And it's just one page, so it's not a lot of reading. Um, the uh, As I said, you can also go directly to Amazon if you want to, to order the book or barnesandnoble.com.
2: We will certainly check that out. Once again, to Brian, very big thank you for your time. You've been absolutely amazing. Looking forward to having you again soon. Keep us up to date. Keep in touch. Love having you back. We wish all the best. And Brian, you definitely have a great future, have you?
4: <laughs> thank you, Mike. Thanks very much for your generosity of your time.
0: The Mike Wagner Show is powered by Sonic Web Studios.